Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Kobot, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. FDA approval of new drugs and biologic agents has multiple implications for health systems and their pharmacy enterprises. In response, AJHP has begun to publish a quarterly update on recent and anticipated new drug approvals. Joining me today to discuss this new AJHP feature are Dr. Matthew Rim, System Director, Ambulatory Pharmacy Services, Northwestern Medicine, and Dr. Andrew Levitsky, Senior Director of Clinical Pharmacy, IPD Analytics. Matt, Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. So Matt, I want to start with you and maybe, you know, really to give the listeners a sense of some of the discussions that we've had over the last year or so in your role also as a contributing editor for AJHP. What was the impetus for developing a quarterly pipeline article on new approvals? Thanks, Dan. I tried to answer the same question for our first publication as well. So as you know, Health System Pharmacists, we monitor the pharmaceutical pipeline for many reasons, including formulary management by PNT work and budgeting, resource allocation. And, you know, with the therapies, we have to develop our clinical operations and programs. So those are the main reasons that we try to develop this pipeline resource for our members and ASHP and AGHP leadership that really for us to optimize our safe and effective use of new medications. And that requires a lot of, you know, resources. So one of those resources that we thought we can add to our members is that we provide this quarterly pipeline information to everyone so that we can get ready for those newer and therapies that never available before. That was the thought. And the other reason that we developed this resource is some medications are limited distribution drugs, which called LDD. And so LDDs really sometimes, you know, manufacturers decide medications to be distributed by certain channel and certain pharmacies. And health systems, we want to really gain access. And to do that, we need to be at the table. So it's more important for health systems, for those medications, specialty medications, and gene and cell therapies. And we want to really think about what's in the pipeline so that we can get ready. Those are the main reasons why we wanted to develop this quarterly article for everyone. And Andy, what would you add to that in terms of the value of making this information available to pharmacists and health systems? You come at it from a bit of a different angle. I do, but I've worked in health systems for many years. And one of the biggest issues is dealing with the expected expenditures that you'll encounter in any given fiscal or calendar year. And I'll tell you, you know, for us, who worked in those, and for everybody who works in health systems, that annual expenditure article is really foundational for understanding trends and for developing strategies to manage, you know, the financial impact of pharmaceuticals. But 
you know, one of the, the shortfalls of the annual expenditures article is that, you know, shortly after, and this isn't just for that article, but shortly after it's published, it becomes outdated because there's so many new developments in the pipeline. And, you know, our thought was that by updating the pipeline information throughout the year, it would help to strengthen that foundational article that everybody depends on. But with having that additional information, it can help for planning for expenditures, for analyzing potential patient populations in, in given environments within the health system to help predict what the financial impact would be and then to prepare for it. So Matt, you know, Andy went to one of the questions that I wanted to ask today, and it's really that synergy between the annual drug expenditures report and the new pipeline series. And Andy's pointed out that this provides an opportunity to keep that information more up to date, provide it more frequently. But what would you add in terms of, again, that synergy between these two articles and how the pharmacist and a health system will actually use these articles as part of their planning? Yeah, absolutely. So I agree with Andy and, you know, pipeline information need to be more up to date because, you know, as soon as we publish something and there are a bunch of other medications added and some medications will delay the approval, FDA will delay the approval. And those things are very fluid and dynamic, right? So answer to your question about expenditure articles, I can give you some background with expenditure articles. Andy already mentioned quite a bit, but, you know, I joined the group that we've been publishing this expenditure article for every year and more than 30 years now. I joined the author group about six years ago. And I began working with Andy and IPD to use the data from IPD to summarize pipeline drugs. Because, you know, if you think about new medications and, you know, those are sometimes high dollar ones and also maybe volume of those medications may be really heavy in the hospital setting or clinic settings. So with those reasons, we think about watching the pipeline and the relationship to the expenditures that we see every year that fluctuates. We are using the that data to properly think about what will be expenditures for the year. And that's the, the work that I've been doing with the author group. And, you know, so the synergy between that and our quarterly publication will be great because I think now that we are summarizing and publishing the pipeline data quarterly, and that will give us more opportunity to highlight certain medications more in depth that perhaps, you know, impacting financially our hospitals and clinics. And we are actually actively talking about that with the authors, how we can really use this spin-off work that we are doing and how we can use that as a vehicle to add more value to our expenditure article. Got it. Andy, the IPD data set is the, the starting point here. And I was just wondering, to give the listener, the reader, sort of a sense of where this information is coming from, can you talk a bit about the IPD data set that underlies this? Sure. So, you know, having an up-to-date pipeline is super important for us at IPD. It's foundational for all the other work that we do, you know, which includes LOE analysis, we do formulary strategy and management, forecasting, budget impact analysis, among other things. So to do all of that work, we have to have an up-to-date pipeline. So we have over 20 pharmacists who do this work in addition to, you know, even more PhD researchers and other people who are monitoring and updating the pipeline perpetually. So every single day, think 
things happen in the pipeline that need to be updated. That makes us, I think, a very good source for you know AJHP to draw upon when trying to provide that type of updated information. And Matt, then with that data set that IPD generates and is going to provide for these quarterly forecast reports, also provides as part of the annual expenditures report, can you talk about the process for the quarterly forecast reports, how you take those data and synthesize those into what ultimately becomes the AJHP article? Yeah, absolutely. So once we get data from Andy and his team, what we do is, you know, that has tremendous amount of information. And we wanted to share basic information for readership. And so, you know, who's the maker of those new therapies and drug name? And we looked at the indication they are seeking and what route this medication will be given. And as well as we look at PADUFA date. And that PADUFA date information is really hard to get. And we are grateful that IPD is providing that information. So those are the information that we will really sort from the data set from IPD and actually Actually, I work with our residents and our clinical pharmacists in author group to kind of work together to develop that drug table, which will be included in the article. And as well as we also looked at, you know, when we pull data. So our first publication is the data as of June 1st, and that data we will summarize and submit our publication about in a month to AGHPs. That's our first publication. That publication includes the data table, and that's selected by our author group that we feel strongly those medications are adding clinical value and financial value. So it's about 30-ish medications we select from about 60 medications in the pipeline. Right. So when we pull the data from June 1st, there are about 60 or so medications with a clear PADUFA date listed from IPD data. So that's the data set we use. And we further sort the data to 30 high impact medications. And that's what's on the publication. In addition, we also share that the full list of 60 drugs in the pipeline as an appendix, and you know, it will be posted online as well. So what should we expect in terms of what's in the pipeline with this publication? So just like any other publications we publish through AJHP, so I'm talking about expenditure article, annual article. So medications that seeking indications for oncology, and also we see uh, many rare diseases, and we see other therapies that treating some specialty conditions. It could be inflammatory conditions and other specialty conditions, and as well as we see some gene and cell therapies. And those are typically treating, you know, some oncology side and rare diseases and many genetic disorders. So Matt, I want to maybe, you know, delve into that a little bit further, along with the oncology medications on the rare disease front, specifically, what types of medications are we looking at? So as you know, oncology pipeline has been strong for many years, right? At the same time, I would say past more than five years or so, we see more treatment options for rare diseases in the pipeline. And as you know, there are, as I mentioned, several cell therapies and gene therapies are there in the pipeline, and many of them were approved already. And, you know, for those medications that are seeking indications, again, as I mentioned, oncology and genetic disorders and several different rare diseases, I wouldn't list all those disease states, but really some medications are treating the diseases that there's no therapies available before. That's what many people are excited about. And at the same time, you know, those medications 
and we're coming with our own challenges that many health systems and academic medical centers, we are trying to understand drugs and try to support those patients who really need those medications and get benefit out of those medications to support them properly. So that's what everyone's kind of working and we're excited about those medications as we'll see more therapies available for our patients. Andy, when you look at this, so you've gone from providing this larger data set and there's been synthesis and now you've molded it into an AGHP article. What's your take on the the pipeline? How do you look at it? Uh, What are your takeaways? You know, we, of course, pay a lot of attention to some of the newer drugs for rare disease that tend to be very expensive, but they're uh, limited in their population. So it often becomes a challenge for a particular health system or maybe a payer to figure out, you know, how many of these patients might we see? How do we prepare for it? But something that we're seeing that's starting to change is that some of these gene therapies are potentially going to be indicated for larger populations. I'll give you one example. We have two gene therapies that are nearing approval for sickle cell disease. And if everything goes right, these could potentially be curative therapies. Of course, it's a very complicated disease state and not every patient would be a candidate, but it does have that type of potential. So we're not, you know, usually a rare disease would have less than 2,000 patients affected, right? So very small populations, but sickle cell disease has about 100,000 people. And that would certainly be, you know, more impactful from a volume perspective in health systems and, and for payers. So that's something that we especially kind of keep an eye on. And then, you know, we've seen everyone's sort of now familiar with the CAR T therapies in oncology, but we're seeing, you know, sort of similar types of treatments that are somewhat like CAR T that are being developed. One of them is a drug called lifaluacil. It uses tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, right? So basically they take these from the patient, they grow them in the lab, and then they put them back into the patient. So it behaves similarly to CAR T cell therapy. This is going to be indicated for advanced metastatic melanoma, but it has potential indications in wider populations like non-small cell lung cancer. So these are things that we see beginning to emerge in the pipeline that from a preparation perspective, from a financial perspective, we really need to pay attention to. You know, it seems to me that another application here, as I listen to the two of you talk about this, another application here is as we're preparing our students, our trainees, our residents for the future of practice, that to have a real sense of what's in the pipeline and the types of medications they're going to be responsible for managing, that there are applications there as well for the use of these data. Would you agree with that? You know, I'd love both of your perspectives. Matt, let me start with you. Yeah, then absolutely. You know, I used kind of, you know, taking students frequently and for my management rotations and also teaching some courses within a college of pharmacy. When I having conversation about either pipeline or expenditure article, students were really fascinated by what's coming to the market, what type of therapies. And those medications are not typically you will learn from classroom settings yet because it's in the pipeline sometimes, right? Although they're going to 
learn some information, but not in depth. So when I share these type of things and then show trends with students and, you know, some of them were really hoping that they have a more access to this type of information so that they can really think about what they want for their career and for their future practice. And I think it'll be valuable for students and trainees. Andy, what would you add to that? The world has changed quite a bit from the time when we got started in pharmacy, right? I mean, we didn't have all these specialty drugs that, you know, we, we had thought about them and we had dreamed about them, but they weren't here yet. So I think, you know, just as you see people specializing in certain areas within specialty pharmacy that really require a lot of knowledge and, and training now, I think that trend is just going to continue to emerge as we see more specialized therapies, particularly gene and cell therapies, there's a lot to learn to be proficient as a pharmacist in, you know, assisting in those areas within the health system. So I think those are tremendous opportunities for students as they're going through pharmacy school and in residency. And then, you know, let's not forget the economic perspective, which is, of course, part of the picture here too. And I think it's very important in the training of pharmacists to make them aware of the need to balance costs with safety and efficacy and think about things like cost effectiveness, the whole, you know, sort of pharmacoeconomic perspective, because as the costs of these drugs continue to rise, that's going to become more and more important. And I think it really should be part of the training that we give to newer pharmacists. In talking about gene therapies, and both of you really focus a fair amount on the science that underlies these gene therapies, the therapeutics around them. But in his editorial that is going to accompany this first in the quarterly pipeline articles that we're going to publish in AGHP, Eric Tishian, his editorial alludes to changes in the medication use process that could be necessitated by both cell and gene therapies. And Matt, let me start with you. I'm interested in, in your reaction to that, the medication use process itself might need to change to accommodate these agents. So I, I think Eric hit the nail on the head. And the clinical operations for these new therapies are really complex than both gene and cell therapy. From product sourcing to therapy administration and management of that medication and patient, there are many unique challenges. And, and not only pharmacy department, but your health systems, other departments are all involved, you know, your medical team and your finance team and rep cycle team and the managed care team, perhaps with the contracting. So it's really poor entire health system approach and it's not just one team. So because of those complex operations, I think that, you know, it'll be really challenging for everyone. And probably the major first hurdle is to navigate the payment. And I I think Andy mentioned that too earlier. So insurance coverage and some medications will be multi-million dollars for just a single dose of administration. So it'll be very challenging. And also after that, you know, we as a pharmacy teams, we need to really think about what pharmacists do well, how to you know, really use the medication and how to educate your providers and patients on those therapies will be really something we need to think about. But because of this complexity and things that you need to have to support those medications and patients. As Eric mentioned, it will be really narrow, real distribution and systems who's supporting those therapies. Because as we know, patients on those medications
medications will be very narrow population as well. And only systems, maybe health systems and academic medical centers who has those capabilities and capacity may support those populations and medications. So it may be a narrow channel and systems to support those medications at the same time. So access issues as well. Andy, sort of tying together some of the comments that you made earlier, you reflected on your own experiences as a health system pharmacist before moving into the role that you're in today. You also reflected on the changes since we trained in terms of the complexity of the agents that are available. So as you look at this, again, maybe from a, through a somewhat different lens, what are your thoughts? What would you add in terms of the potential for changes to the, the medication use process itself as Eric Tish? alluded to in, in his editorial. I think, you know, it's becoming more and more complicated, which means that the need for pharmacists to really be on top of this stuff and really then to provide education within their environments to providers, to patients, to uh, other support groups, patient navigators within the system will be extremely important to being able to make these medications work effectively for the patient, right? I mean, there's all kinds of issues, too numerous for us to get into on this podcast around finances. But as we already know, within the specialty environment, pharmacists are, are really useful in understanding insurance coverage and, and facilitating approvals and things of, of that nature. And then, you know, counseling the patient and making sure that that's a smooth process all around. So I think the need for that type of intervention on the part of pharmacists will grow even more and it'll become even more complicated. So I think the need for pharmacists to become educated and to embrace that role of, you know, educating providers, patients, and anyone else involved in the therapies, including, you know, the C-suite, you know, in terms of understanding some of the financial implications and really working to tie all of those aspects together within the health system, I think is uh, really important. It's a very important role that the pharmacist can take on. You know, Andy, I wanted to go back to a comment that you made earlier. You talked about the team of pharmacists at IPD. I think you said there were about 20 pharmacists on the team who are analyzing data. And I'm interested a bit in the career path. What's the typical background of one of those folks? And I'm thinking about this from the perspective, again, of that student, that resident who's thinking about what their future options are in pharmacy. So I'm just interested in learning a bit more about that person who ultimately finds themselves working as a pharmacist at IPD? Yeah, we have quite a mix. I mean, we have several folks here who have been working in pharmacy well over 20 years. I would be one of them who've held leadership positions, you know, in hospitals or in managed care environments. So we certainly have a number of those folks, but we do have some mid-career folks and some people that we've hired straight out of uh, residency programs. I think uh, I would say within our group, we have sort of a strong managed care presence, you know, people that have worked in that environment, but certainly, you know, also a fair amount of folks with significant health system experience as well. So I think this is the type 
type of uh, you know opportunity that certainly someone who's interested in pharmacy from a, a broad perspective, understanding you know financial implications, managed care implications, operational aspects that would be important to the work that we do at IPD. It's certainly a very interesting type of position. So I do think that you know as things evolve within pharmacy, uh, certainly this type of work that we do at IPD would certainly be a, a channel that pharmacists should explore. But I would say that to do the type of work we do, for instance, to be able to comment on some of the issues and provide insights on some of the issues that happen within certain environments, certainly having some work experience within those environments is helpful. Got it. So Matt, we're here talking about the first in this quarterly series of pipeline reports. When should we expect the next one? So next publication, we are actually finalizing it now. So to share some timeline, we pulled a second data set from IPD that's uh, October 1st. So we kind of work on our data set, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, our authors already drafted our manuscript. So I'm at the final stage to edit and we'll turn it over to AGHP. So that's our second one. And then third one will be same similar format, but data pool will be January 1st. And mixed in there will also be the annual expenditures report. Correct. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Drs. Matthew Rim and Andrew Levitsky for joining me to discuss their article, Recent and Anticipated Novel Drug Approvals for 2023 and 2024, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Matt, Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.